And the older kids can turn to uh, Exodus, where we've been uh, kind of thinking about Moses and kind of how Moses is uh, teaching us so many things. There's uh, really three big movements, I think, in um, the book of Exodus, three major themes, if you will. Uh, First is God's deliverance, right? Taking God's people out of uh, Egypt, uh, kind of uh, our salvation. Talking about salvation, how God saved people from slavery. And uh, the second kind of big movement in the book of Exodus is God's revelation of his morality, of his ideas of what's right and what's wrong. And then the third major part of Exodus has to do with worship and uh, God's prescription for legitimate worship of himself. And uh, we learn, you know, from God's disclosures to Moses, some of the most basic truths about God and theology, the study of God, uh, from really what God disclosed to Moses, these uh, truths. And so today, uh, we come to kind of the morality part and thinking about uh, the Ten Commandments. And I want to suggest to you, Uh, Two things. Number one, I want to suggest to you that there is no right and wrong apart from God. Apart from God, we just have your opinion and mine, right? And we can argue all day long. Um, There is no right and wrong apart from God. And I think you can kind of sense in our culture as we move further away from God, less and less are the lines drawn between what's right and what's wrong. In fact, we're getting to the place where what's wrong is being declared right and what's right is being declared wrong. And uh, I would say it's because we've kind of moved away from God. And I I feel like our nation, our country, you know, had statesmen at the beginning who wrote the Constitution and so forth and and had many of the ideas of Moses uh, filtered through those men into our Constitution and established our country Uh, And those things are being challenged uh, a great deal uh, in our day and age. The other thing I would uh, suggest to you is that at the core of God's revelation of his morality is the idea of um, be holy for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. What God is after, it seems to me, is uh, more of a relationship than putting rules on us. Most of us, I think, when we think of the Ten Commandments, we think, oh, these are the rules of God. And yes, they are. They're commandments. They're commands, right? But the commands are there, um, I'm going to suggest to you, almost like uh, wedding vows. Like the idea is, you know, we're going to take these vows together uh, so it will help us to live together uh, in meaningful and happy and significant ways. Be holy for I am holy. Now, holy just means separate, right? Different, unique, holy. Remember in uh, Exodus 19, God said, I'm going to take you people to be my treasured possession. That sounds like a, a, a marriage proposal, doesn't it? It's like, I want you for my treasured possession. And uh, you're going to be a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. And God says, you know, it's my very presence that's gone with you and is with you now. And so for anybody who wants to do life with me, understand uh, that my character will not tolerate evil. 
And so I'm revealing to you these commands in order that we might have this really neat relationship whereby uh, we can live together and uh, extract from that all that uh, God intends to give us. In Deuteronomy 4, uh, again, uh, Deuteronomy is reiterating what happened to the first generation of people out of Egypt. And this is talking uh, to their kids and grandkids and so forth. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 37 uh, says this. Moses is talking to the people. Uh, Because he loved your fathers and he chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves, Uh, to bring you in and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it on your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath, and there is no other. And therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today. Why? So that it might go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, okay, for all time, for all time. So God's commandments are designed, I believe, in order that we might facilitate a relationship with him that is way beneficial for us. The motive for God giving us the Ten Commandments is so that we can live in his presence, so that we can have a relationship with him as he desired Uh, with the people of Israel. Again, kind of like wedding vows. I I don't know, you know, for those of us who are married, I don't think of wedding vows as commands. Like, oh man, I have to keep this vow again today. You don't think like that, right? You think, well, these are just, you know, parameters which enable us. Of course, we're, uh, you know, committed to each other in sickness and in health and for better or worse and so on and so forth. And so, Um, Again, I think that the commandments are kind of like that. And so when Jesus was here, you remember he said, you know what, Uh, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said all the law, all the prophets, all the commandments and everything are really an extension of these two uh, simple, easy-to-remember uh, laws and all the rest of them come out of that. So in Exodus chapter 20, where we are today, um, you know, uh, the first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God, and the last six have to do with our relationship with people and uh, how to get along with one another. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 and 3 uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. It's the first commandment. And I think uh, it's significant. I'm Yahweh. I'm your God, Elohim. I own the universe. I'm the creator of the world. All the nations are mine, but you are my people. And God's talking to Israel, I think, both as a nation, as a national entity, and as individuals. Right? It's just like talking to the church while the church is just made up of individuals. Right? In fact, just like a marriage, uh, people say, oh, you know, I got these problems in my marriage. And I'm like, I got good news and bad news. The good news is it's not your marriage. The bad news is it's you. 
Because guess what? No marriage can be any better than the two people who make it up. It's really pretty simple. All you got to do is become a better person. You can have a better marriage. Same thing is true of church. No church can be any better than the people who make it up. You want to have a better church? Just become a better person. And by better, I just mean more like Jesus, right? And so, uh, you know, I think that um, we can understand this. Um, God is saying that this relationship um, that he has with us, I've chosen you, I want you to be my treasured possession, I've promised your ancestors uh, a, a special relationship with your people, and the first thing God says is this is going to be an exclusive relationship. It's going to be you and me. Don't ever put anything before me. Don't ever allow anybody or anything to come between us. Don't ever, you know, uh, forget that this is designed. I'm the only God that there is, and I've chosen you. And uh, don't let anybody or anything ever come between us. Don't let anything rise up high enough, you know, so that it becomes a rival to our relationship. And you'll notice here in verse 3, um, well, in verse uh, Two and three, he he says, I am the Lord your God, capital G, capital G, okay? Don't have any other small g gods before me. Don't let anything ever get so high in your life and so valued and so worshipped, right, that it comes between us and all of a sudden I'm number two. That'll destroy a relationship real quick, right, with God. And so um, there are small g's, small g gods, but there's only one big g god. And uh, God knows that, you know, there's a tendency in our fallen nature to allow small g gods to get in the way of our devotion to God. Because God has granted us free will, we do have the ability to confer God-like status on anything or anybody. And God has given us, you know, everything to enjoy, but nothing is ever to take his place or to rise uh, above him. And, you know, I, I know when I make a statement like that, most of you are saying, well, of course not. Of course not, right? Uh, but is God really in first place in every area of our life? Is God our first thought, our relationship with God in every area of life? When we go to work on Monday morning, are we thinking, you know, I'm here on behalf of God. Yes, I'm here to work for the company, and I'm here to do that. But my first priority is I represent the living God to my teammates and and whoever, you know. Um, We can make a small g God out of anything. Uh, You can make a small g God out of your problem. Well, problems, right? And um, when we start to think that our problem is bigger than our God... When our problem draws more of our attention and our focus away from God, it can become a small g God. It gets between us and our relationship with God. All we can think about is our problem. And what are we going to do to get rid of it? Uh, Money, I think, is a very popular small g God. So many people think that money can do for them what God, only God can really do. If you stop and think about it, only God can really provide you with a sense of security. Only God can extend your life past this life and on into eternity. Money can't do that, right? Only God can give your life significance. 
money can't really do that. I, I think that uh, in uh, Matthew, Jesus got at this a little bit. Um, when in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you know, nobody can serve two masters. Jesus said this. Uh, he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Nobody can have two firsts in their life. And God wants to be first. He wants that place in our life, and he wants it to be exclusive, right? That's the only thing that I can think of that Jesus ever raised to the same level as himself is money. Because so many people think that money can do for them what really uh, only God can do, and it becomes a rival. Nobody can have two firsts in their life. I think we can make a small g God out of persons, um, a small g God, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, all of a sudden becomes way more important to us than our relationship with God, uh, a spouse, a boss, our family. I suppose the uh, biggest uh, person to rival our relationship with God is probably ourselves. Uh, it's, it's just natural to live a me-first life. And God says, no, I want you to live a God-first life. I want to be first in your life because I want to bless you. I have all this stuff I want to do in your life and I want to give you and I want to make it go well for us and, you know, and I have eternity in mind for you and so on and I just want to be first. And if you'll trust me and allow me to be first and not have any rivals and so forth, uh, pleasure can be a small g God. Um, food. You know, we're uh, in the middle of this fast. When I was younger, right, um, when I was younger, to be honest with you, uh, I would be at church, you know, and I would listen to older people, and they'd always be talking about food. Where are you going to this restaurant? Where are you going to that restaurant? Where would you find the best deal? Where would you have the best meal? And on and on. And I said, I am never going to be like that. Now I'm old. <laughs> and, you know, food is a big, important part of, you know, where are we going to go? What are we going to eat? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I'm thankful for this time of fasting to just say, listen, I had to come back to this. You know, God is more important and spending time with the Lord is way more important than food and what we're going to eat, and where we're going to get it and all of the rest of it. Right. Um, and so I'm thankful. It's helpful to be able to just get things back into perspective. I don't want a small G God like food you know, to get in between us and God. And so this commandment is first, I think, for a reason. It's the most important of all the other commandments because all the other ones depend on this. If God isn't first, if God is not the object of our worship, then we're going to be pretty casual about what he's got to say. We're going to be picking and choosing what we're going to obey. You know, we're going to be kind of casual about who he is. And, uh, well, you know, God understands. God understands. Well, one of the things that I think we learned in the Old Testament is that God said, I want you to be my treasured possession, and if you don't want anything to do with it, you're going to pay for it. You think about the history of the Jewish people from this point here forward. Yeah, out of Egypt. Yeah, my people. Yeah, you know, across uh, the Red Sea and so forth. But what happens as we go forward to these people who are supposed to be God's treasured possession? You know what God says? He says, these are a stubborn group of people. These are a stiff-necked group of people. They want to do what they want to do. They want to listen to me. They don't trust me that I can give them a better life than the life that they're going to make for themselves. And God is frustrated, you know, uh, the whole way through until we get 
uh, the different prophets picking on the fact that there's got to be a new covenant, a new testament. There are lots of good things in life, uh, but we can only have one first, and God wants that position exclusively for himself. Uh, Maybe, you know, his biggest rival is when we insist on uh, being a me-first kind of person, and time and time again, this is what happens to the Israelites. They simply wouldn't surrender. You know, life is broken, right? This life is broken, and wherever there's life, there's always change, and change always involves loss, and loss always involves pain, and if we don't turn to God in the midst of all that life dishes up, uh, we're going to turn to something in his creation. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, if you don't worship the creator, you're going to worship the creation. You're going to find something in the creation that you're going to try to make take God's place. It's really what an addiction is, right? It's trying to find something in the creation that makes me feel okay in the midst of the pain that I sense that I'm living with and so forth. And um, so, first command, right? Don't have any small g gods Get to the place where they come between you and God. Second command, verse 4 and 5, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Jealousy is simply the fear of being replaced. God says, I'm a jealous God. I do not want anything taking my place, you know, and I want to be first in your life. I'm the Lord, your God, with a big G. So if the first command, right, is don't let, don't let anything rise up to equal to God's place in your life, the second command is don't try to bring God down to something manageable, something less than he is. Don't try to make an image that, you know, can, uh, well, this will be what represents God. There's nothing in the creation that could represent God. The only thing that, you know, is a true representation of our Father in heaven is Jesus. He's the perfect representation of the Father above, right? Uh, Anything other than that is less than who God is. Don't make the invisible God try to become visible by making an idol. Don't bow down to it. Don't serve it. You know, only Jesus is the exact representation, and God is a jealous God. Never try to reduce God down to our size to kind of create some kind of earthly uh, representation. God hates idolatry. Hates idolatry. Uh, The third uh, command here uh, picks up in verse 7. Um, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The idea of in vain uh, means something without substance. Don't use God's name in a light way, in a casual way. Um, Something empty or something hollow. Don't misuse God's name in an empty way. Because God's names are significant. They reveal who he is. Do you realize that uh, in the Bible there are over 500 various names and titles and descriptions of God? And so to use God's name in a casual or a light way uh, offends him. There are, uh, again, over 500 different uh, descriptions of God. 
Uh, the opposite of this is taking the Lord's name in vain. Uh, the opposite of that is reverencing his name, or, you know, as we're taught in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. You ever stop and just try to pray through the Lord's Prayer and get to that phrase, you know, hallowed be your name. There is no other name like the name of God. There is no other person. Uh, hallowed be your name. Your name is special. You represent my salvation, my hope for eternity, and so on and so forth. Hallowed be thy name. His name represents him. Um, Again, I think uh, maybe Jesus was getting at this uh, when he was here, and uh, he said in uh, Matthew chapter 12, uh, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. I'm like, whoa, time out. Let's read that again, make sure I got that right, right? I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. And I think, wow, that's a pretty severe, just think of uh, all of the, the words that have come out of our mouth in, in times you know, where we were casual. Uh, I think it's a warning uh, not to make promises in God's name. You know, I, I, you hear people say this all the time. You know, they're trying to convince you. And uh, I swear to God, I swear to God, you know, I'm telling the truth and so forth. And God says, don't do that. Don't use my name to cover up your perjury, right? You're trying to convince somebody. Uh, just let your yes be yes and your no be no and so on. Uh, to, we're, we're here to fight against the misuse and the ignorance that surrounds God's name and so forth. Uh, We're to exalt his name together, and uh, he's the source of every good thing, including our eternal life. All right, and then the fourth command in our relationship with God, uh, beginning at verse 8, says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor, do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, everything that's in it, rested the seventh day, and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Uh, The Sabbath, uh, one out of seven days, is to be unique and to be different. If uh, God's going to be first, it seems to me God is saying, Um, then you have to work me into your schedule. Again, those of you who are married might understand this, that, you know, uh, from time to time we get caught up in doing whatever we're doing, and our spouse says, you know, it feels like we haven't spent any time together for a long time. You know, how about a date? How about we go do something together? How about, you know, uh, we make each other count and feel like we're important to each other? And I think we have to be intentional about this. This is a... Difficult thing, uh, because everybody's always so busy, but to take a day out of seven and to make it holy or separated or devoted to God, there's 168 hours in a week. Everybody gets the same, right? We all have the same amount of time. And, uh, you know, you guys, some of you guys jump on the train and go into the city. So if you worked a 10-hour day, I'm giving you instead of an eight-hour day, a 10-hour day, If you worked a 10-hour day for, uh, you know, five days a week, and if you slept for eight hours a night, which probably you don't, but I'm being generous and so forth, and if you eat a little bit from time to time, and if you take a shower once in a while, 
and you spend a little time with the kids and with your spouse and so forth, the average person at the end of all of that still has almost 50 hours of discretionary time. So, it's a great question to ask, to say, in order for me to have the kind of relationship I want with God, the kind of relationship I want with God, how much time do I think I need to devote in a week to having that relationship? Now, I know this is convicting because we just got past football and we're now into March Madness and you know, there's a conviction about time and so forth, but how much time do we spend in front of the TV? And just ask yourself, if I were to just subtract a few hours out of that TV and uh, offer it to God in whatever he wanted for me to do, that we could be together and, and be working together in the world for his kingdom purposes and so forth, uh, the average person has like 50 discretionary hours. I was surprised, you know, when I kind of did this, I'm like, can that really be true that you know, we might waste 50 hours just vegging out in front of the TV? i got to cut that back. How many hours do I think I'd have to spend to have the kind of relationship that I uh, desire with God? And this passage ties the Sabbath day directly to the creation and to rest and sort of creates a rhythm for us, uh, taking some time to remember that everything, including you and I, uh, was created by God. And you ever think, well, you would all agree with that, right? God created everything. So one of the implications of that is that God owns everything. Okay? And one of the implications of the fact that God owns everything is that God is in control of everything. I don't have to be in control. God owns it. You know, I'm not in control of your car. You own your car. You're in control of your car. I don't have control of your car. God owns the universe. He owns the world. You're not in control. Have you figured that out? You know, you think you're in control and you go along and something happens that's totally out of your control. God's in control. And not only that, but here's another implication. Um, You and I are not the judge of anything that's God's. God's the judge. He made it. He owns it. It's his. I don't have to judge other people. I don't... God owns those other people, not me. And I don't have to be involved in judging right and wrong. God owns everything, and he's explaining to us what's right and wrong, and so on. And another implication of the fact that God created everything and owns everything, when you take a Sabbath and take some time to think about, well, what are the implications that God created everything? Another implication of that is that God deserves, as Laura so aptly puts it even this morning, God deserves all the praise. Everything that goes good, everything that's right, all the good gifts that are in our life come down from the Father above. He is the one worthy of all praise, not us. The implications of the fact that God is the creator and uh, to take some time and to just think about that, the Sabbath uh, is a pretty important concept. In in Exodus 31, uh, God says that uh, the Sabbath is to be a sign. It's kind of interesting. Exodus 31, uh, verse 12, uh, the Lord says to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say this to the people of Israel, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout all your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. 
Well, that's kind of a cool. Uh, a sign is uh, something tangible that points to something greater, right? You might have a, a sign that says, you know, Route 84 is coming up. Well, it's just a little sign, but, you know, it's pointing to something greater. Uh, the Sabbath is to be a sign, I think, both for Jewish people and for the rest of the world, uh, that these people are special and they're up to something special. It's a, if we keep with the metaphor of marriage, uh, the Sabbath would be like wearing a wedding ring. This is a sign to the rest of the world, the Jewish people. Uh, every Saturday they go, you know, and they spend the Sabbath day and they learn because uh, this passage, God says to Moses, It'll be a sign that I am sanctifying these people. I am doing something in their lives that's priority to them, and they make sure they show up on the Sabbath to learn and to grow and to worship and to be mentored and and whatever's happening. Uh, It's a sign that I, God, am mentoring these people. These are my people. These are my treasured possession. And, uh, you know, uh, I think it's just exciting. And so... um, the Sabbath is to be a sign. It's to be a sign that God is mentoring. And uh, by the way, uh, all of the Ten Commandments show up in the New Testament except for this one. There's no repeat of the Sabbath uh, command in the New Testament. In fact, in Colossians, uh, Paul talks about the fact that people got the Sabbath so messed up and had so many rules around it that you know, uh, don't let anybody uh, put you into a box on, on this one. Now, in Exodus chapter 24, um, so, you know, God is talking these first four commandments from the mountain. The people are all around the bottom and so forth. And in um, Exodus chapter uh, 24, let me uh, get there. Uh, what happens is that God calls Moses up to the mountain. Exodus 24, 12 Uh, says this, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instructions. So all the people have been at the bottom. God has been speaking these four commands to the people, you know, and uh, and then God, after he gets done with all ten, the people are like, ah, don't, you know, talk to us anymore, God. Let Moses do it because we're going to die if you keep saying these things. Because we don't live up to them, you know. And um, so God calls Moses up to get the uh, tablets of stone. And in um, chapter 32 and verses uh, 16 and 17, uh, 15 and 16. Uh, so Moses turns, he goes uh, down from the mountain with the two tablets, the testimony in his hands, the tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, were they written, the tablets. Uh, were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. This gives new meaning to nothing new under the sun. You get it? You computer literate people understand, you know, this is uh, uh, God revealing to Moses, writing it on a tablet and so forth. So, while Moses is up the mountain, receiving the tablets, okay, you all know what's going on down below. Moses is gone for 40 days and 40 nights, okay? And uh, what's going on down below is that the people are breaking all four of these commandments as they are being given by God. I mean, it's just incredible. 
In Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before Small g gods. A couple of things. First of all, these people had elevated Moses to a godlike status. Right? All of a sudden, their god, Moses, is missing, and they're saying, we got to get a new god. we got to get something to take the place of Moses. He's been gone for more than a month. We don't know what's happened to him. And uh, they had elevated Moses, and they, uh, they, they then needed a small g god to take his place. They had elevated him to godlike status, and now he's missing. They lost sight of the God who actually brought them out of Egypt. It wasn't Moses, it was God who brought them out of Egypt. But their faith, you know, gave way to fear again because uh, they had elevated Moses to God's position in their life. They're looking now for something they can turn to, uh, something they can worship, something they can follow, and so forth. And so the people break the first commandment, no other gods before me. Then they break the second commandment uh, in verses... um, Two to four, Aaron said to the people, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and uh, bring them to me. So all the people took off all the rings of gold that were in their ears, brought them to Aaron. You remember this now? Uh, These were slaves, right? But remember, right before they left Egypt, God told them to ask the Egyptians for all their gold, and they went out of Egypt with a ton of uh, jewelry and gold and all of this kind of stuff, the most the most prized possession they had, right? It's like the most valuable thing that they owned that was uh, from the Egyptians. And uh, Aaron received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Wow. How fast, 40 days after all God did, right? We look at it historically, we look back and we say, my goodness, I would never do something like that. Uh, But if you think about it, um, the the most valuable possession these people had um, turned into a small G God. Think of your most valued, whatever you cherish the most. These people took their gold, gave it to Aaron, and it got fashioned into, you just like, you see how this happens. Our most valuable possessions become rival small g gods, and God is a jealous God. He's not about to be replaced with the gold that he made. Uh, I get a kick out of this in uh, Exodus 32 and verse 22. Uh, Moses comes down from the mountain. He's ripped off at Aaron, his brother. What did you do, you know? And Aaron says this. In verse 22, he says, oh, let not the anger of my Lord burn, Moses. Chill out. Take it easy. Don't burn so hot. You know the people. They're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And uh, for this, Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. Again, God brought you up from the land of Egypt, not Moses. Uh, We don't know what's happened to him. So I said to the people, look, let anybody who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. You ever do that? (laughs) I mean, come on, Aaron. You know, uh, but that's how he justified himself. Uh, A bull was a, a religious symbol in the secular culture for power. 
And uh, there was uh, calf worship. It was part of uh, the reason that God inflicted uh, pain even on the animals when he took the people out of Egypt. And then um, uh, Aaron says in uh, verses 5 and 6 here of uh, chapter 32, Uh, It says, when Aaron saw that the people were like this, uh, he built an altar before the golden calf, and Aaron made a proclamation. He said, tomorrow shall be, listen, a feast to the Lord. We're going to take an idol, we're going to make an altar around it, and we're going to have a party, and we're going to call it worship of God. Talk about taking the Lord's name in vain. I'm telling you, they broke all of these commandments before, you know, they could even get down the mountain. And um, I just think, you know, and you can read about this party that they had, and, and uh, uh, Moses says here in uh, uh, verse 35, he says, the people just broke loose. The people broke loose. Uh, we would call that, you know, the people came unglued, and they just went wild. Uh, so God's really ticked, you know. God is like, I'm done with these people. These people don't want anything to do with me. Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a new people out of you. We're just going to start over. And we can learn a lot from Moses and be mentored because Moses then begins to pray to God and he begins to quote scripture back to God. But God, you said. But God, you made these promises to Abraham and to our forefathers. But God, and he quotes scripture back to God in order that Uh, God would continue with his plan. It's a great instructive passage. But let me just close with this. Uh, After the people, you know, got settled into their land and so forth, um, Israel was viewed as being at the center of all nations, okay? And uh, at the center of Israel was Jerusalem, and at the center of Jerusalem was the temple, and at the center of the temple was the Holy of Holies, And at the center of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And at the center of the Ark of the Covenant were the two remade tablets of the Ten Commandments that God had given to the people so that they could have a relationship with him. Be holy, be different, for I am holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so instructive to just refresh ourselves with this story about your people and how you wanted them to be your treasured possession. And it's so sad to think how fickle and how easy it is for us to get lured by the world, to get frustrated in waiting for you to come through uh, and uh, to elevate uh, small g gods uh, to take your place. And I just pray that you'll help us. Help us to remember you always, to remember who you are to give you the time that you deserve, to make you first in every area of our life so that we might walk together and do life together in a way that's uh, both a blessing to you and a blessing for us. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being able to do that because of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.